Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to The Bill Press Show this Friday, April 6th, 2018. We're just actually one day here in D.C. past peak cherry blossom day blooming. If you want to know, I'm Igor Volsky filling in. For Bill Press, and right after this show, running out to obviously see the cherry blossoms on what will probably be the nicest day we'll have in the next two weeks, because this weather keeps on yo-yoing like nothing I've ever seen. So, there you have it. Uh, we got lots to cover, including breaking news uh, from overnight in the New York Times about EPA officials being fired after raising concerns about EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and his incredible spending habits. We're going to get into into the details of all of that because of the scandal that's been surrounding Pruitt shows no signs of slowing down. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Igor, I know you don't like to talk about sports. Oh, sports. But we are going to talk about the Masters because it's a tradition unlike any other. Do you That's know the... golf, everybody. There you go. You got it. You got it. We go to Augusta, Georgia. Everyone's been keeping their eyes on Tiger, Tiger, Tiger Woods, y'all. But uh, he didn't do so great. He didn't do horrible. I mean, he's still in the mix, but he didn't do so great yesterday. He shot a 73 in his first Major since 2015, but the big story is Jordan Spieth. He is fully in the driver's seat. He hit five straight birdies yesterday, which had him finish his first round with a score of 66. A very, very, very good score. I, I know. It doesn't sound I, too impressive to I, me, Peter. I, I always, I, I usually don't do sports stories when you're in that seat, Igor, because I know you don't like sports stories. I know it's not for you, but but you mentioned Tiger Woods. I know, I you heard know of who this Tiger, Tiger Woods. Woods. Do you know who Jordan Spieth is? I have no Jordan. I have no idea who Jordan is. He's a, uh, he's a, he's a big golfer. Is he as good as Tiger Woods? Is he as good as Tiger Woods was when Tiger Woods was in his prime? Ooh, that's tough. I don't know. Okay. It's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, but but like, even if you don't watch golf, if you're going to watch one golf tournament, you should watch the Masters. It's gorgeous. Okay. It's beautiful. I will. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. And that's okay. I just I I, I had to put that out. That's there. fair. All right. Uh, you know, hurricane season is uh, not far away, Bill. Or, or Igor. Igor. I'm Igor. Igor. I know we look so similar. 
forgive me. The uh, Colorado State University's Tropical Meteorology Project has been taking a look at past hurricane seasons, how bad they've been, because it's been fairly... I mean, there have been a couple of big yeah, storms, obviously, yeah. but it's been fairly mild here in terms of the mainland of, of America. Well, they're saying that uh, this year's hurricane season is going to be very, very busy. Oh, Very, very busy. But they say it's not going to be as destructive as the record-breaking season that we had in 2017. They say that we should see 14 named storms. Seven of them are predicted to strengthen into hurricanes, with three becoming major storms that are Category 3 or higher. Well, you they, know, there, there was once a hurricane, Igor. It didn't go anywhere. But well, uh, I did have the that that to be proud of. That's pretty cool. Uh, they also say that this because... <laughs> no, look, I mean, a hurricane, like a Hurricane Peter, Hurricane Igor, like, that'd, that'd be cool. Yeah. I'd, I'd be all right with that. Our day will come. Uh, they say that because of uh, part of the reason that this is going to be an issue is that the warm waters of the Atlantic Ocean and a weaker El Nino may be blamed for the uptick in all of the uh, storm activity. And uh, we're just a couple of weeks away. April 27th is when Marvel's Avengers Infinity War comes up. Do you watch these comic book movies? Anymore? No. Well, they are saying Deadline is reporting <laughs> so that fun. Deadline <laughs> is reporting that the movie is set to bring in at least two hundred million dollars in its opening weekend now remember the black panther brought in 242 million whenever it black panther up. i watched and liked by the way oh you did yeah see as it. far as those kinds of movies go i i thought it was great. okay so having seen black panther it's not enough to get you to go back and see uh infinity war what is it, Infinity? All of them are in it, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all of them. Are in it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe I'll go see it. I don't know if I'll like it, but I'll <laughs> go see fine. it. It's fine. I was just, I was curious. We'll go together. I'll go with you. You buy the I'll popcorn, go. I'll get the ticket. Deal. Deal. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Ooh, Bill Press Show on the go anywhere you are. I like that. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press on this Friday, April 6th, 2018. Good morning, good morning. So good to be back with you guys. I think it's been a little bit, but... Uh, here we are, and again at the end of a crazy week for Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator who has been in a lot of hot water, mostly because I think he's trying to use public service to become very wealthy and powerful, which, you know, is not a good combination and is not a good use of that office. But in a report out yesterday, Yesterday afternoon for the New York Times, EPA officials sidelined after questioning Scott Pruitt new explosive details about how Scott Pruitt insisted on chartering private planes, building bulletproof desks, and using sirens all across D.C. to get to fancy dinners across towns. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, who was in West Virginia, what was this, Peter, yesterday, uh, yeah. was asked about Scott Pruitt, and he defended the guy, saying, ooh, Cole Country loves Scott Pruitt. Here he is on the plane 
telling reporters what a good job his EPA administrator's doing. I just left coal and energy country. They love Scott Pruitt. They feel very strongly about Scott Pruitt, and they love Scott Pruitt. It's like he's trying to remind himself what the guy's name is. He says, like, <laughs> that, that, that clip is 10 seconds long. He says the word Scott Pruitt. Probably 10 times. Yeah, it's Scott Pruitt, Scott Pruitt, Scott Pruitt. What's his name again? Scott Pruitt. Right. And soon all of you will know Scott <laughs> Pruitt. <laughs> but it's been about two weeks of these headlines of Scott Pruitt wasting hundreds and thousands of dollars of taxpayer dollars on private chartered jets, private flights all across the country, special detours of those flights so that he could spend weekends in Oklahoma, but it wasn't until yesterday that we found out that those criticisms that were coming mostly from Scott Pruitt critics will admit and the press that they were also heard inside the EPA and that at least five officials in the EPA, four of them high ranking, were reassigned or demoted or requested new jobs when they confronted Scott Pruitt about his behavior. You know, I kind of, part of me, a very small, tiny part of me, feels a little bad for Scott Pruitt. Here is why. Here is why. You're going to have to, you're going to have to. Scott Pruitt, you see, has the deep misfortune of being surrounded in the cabinet by very wealthy, mostly men. And he's the only one whose whose net worth is maybe just between one million and five million dollars. Poor guy. And so the, the guy Peter tries to play on their level. He tries to have the the fancy office furniture and the exquisite travel. And all he has to do is he he only has the the, the taxpayer piggy bank to play with. To um to get there, he's trying to be accepted into the club. We know how this was like. We were growing up. We tried to fit in with the cool kids. This is what's going on with Scott Pruitt. You understand? <laughs> it's a good defense. Yeah, I think, a, I think that's a pretty reasonable defense. Right? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's practically basically what he said, uh, you know, to Fox News the other day. Well, you know, this is going to be a really interesting test of what Pruitt and Trump can actually get away with, right? Because. We saw a similar story play out with Tom Price early in the Trump presidency, early-ish in the Trump presidency. Yeah, you remember he left because of those private uh, uh, flights that he took. Yeah, and, and like, in hindsight, right, that was child's play compared to what Mnuchin is doing, compared to what Zinke is doing, compared to what Pruitt himself is doing. Uh, There's been a lot of great reporting on just the amount of travel that he has taken and not only not only just him but an entourage of people yeah right? he, so, he has a full-time like 20 person security team yeah the whole security team plus there was a, there was some reporting done yesterday about a trip he took to Morocco and he took a bunch of his friends from Oklahoma with him but here's the interesting thing about their trip to Morocco they went to Morocco Morocco and they had a layover in Paris France and oh. then they and then they didn't make their connecting flight. Oh, oops. So for a one-day trip to Morocco, they ended up spending like two and a half days in Paris, France. Oh. With like his whole security thing, all of his friends, and by the way, all on the taxpayers' dime. <laughs> you know, it kind of sounds like somebody who, and you know these shows, people win, win the lottery and they blow the money in like 
a couple years because they spend it on these crazy, insane things and have yeah. no real understanding of how to manage those dollars effectively or yes. invest them or be responsible. This is this is what Scott Pruitt is like, only he's using our money to do it. Let me read some of the details here in this article uh, from the New York Times yesterday just to give you a sense, some color to Pruitt's crazy spending habits. Now, one staffer who I think here was demoted, objected, sharply objected to a proposal to buy, get this, a $100,000 a month charter aircraft membership that would have allowed (laughs) Mr. Pruitt to take unlimited private jet trips for official business. Mm, The membership was not purchased. The staffer also objected to spend $70,000 to replace two desks in Mr. Pruitt's office suite, including his personal desk and, and, a, and a security desk outside of his office. Now, um, uh, one of those desks to be upgraded was to be a bulletproof model, according to former EPA employees. The bulletproof desk was also not purchased, but two desks were ordered from Mr. Pruitt's personal office a brown maple wood stand-up desk with brass locks that were purchased from a craftsman and an oversized desk with ornate woodworking that had been in the federal government warehouse in Virginia and was refurbished for Mr. Pruitt at a cost of over $2,000. Why anybody needs a bulletproof desk in their personal office in a building with security in a room that's next to a room with a security station, I just don't understand. But I am glad that Scott Pruitt understands the real threat of gun violence in America. Um, Now, uh, you know, staff members, when all of these expenses were coming in, uh, raised uh, big alarms about how much this office renovation was going to cost and uh, said that it may not follow federal guidelines. No, it didn't. Uh, And Mr. Pruitt, it says here, really pushed to make them stretch the letter of the law to, to ensure that they comply. Now, this next piece here, in terms of uh, the Pruitt abuse of power, you know, is going to piss off a lot of D.C. residents. Those of us who live on uh, on uh, in and around where uh, a lot of these restaurants that he likes to frequent are uh, see a lot of these motorcades, and you know, we often wonder, oh, it's you know, a maybe it's uh, maybe it's the president, maybe it's uh, some kind of foreign dig- dignitary. This part of the story is bonkers, by the way. Uh, and yeah, it turns out it's Mr. Pruitt. Uh, so, um, Mr. Pruitt. Uh, had a desire, <laughs> you see, to use flashing lights <laughs> and sirens in his motorcade, a perk more commonly associated with the presidency, the New York Times helpfully reminds us, uh, according to three people who worked uh, at the EPA. Yeah, I mean, it's the, he, he's the head of the EPA. Yeah. He's not the president of the United States. He's not the <laughs> vice president. He's not the secretary of state. And I don't mean to denigrate the good people that have served as the head of the EPA in the past, but like... Sorry, you're pretty far, and especially in the Trump administration, where they don't care about the EPA. They don't care about the environment. Now, Mr. Pruitt, you see, often runs late, and so he wanted to use lights and sirens to expedite local trips in Washington to the airport or to dinner, including at least one trip to Le Diplomat. 
a trendy French restaurant that he frequented. And Peter Ogburn is taking Igor Volsky after the show. Such yeah. use was not, was not consistent with agency policy. And oh, really? <laughs> oh, the, really? But the security official who was demoted was unsuccessful in stopping it, <laughs> the New York Times adds. That security official was later replaced with somebody who would sign off on such a request. No, like, I, I, the more we read about the, the Scott Pruitt stuff, the more it sounds like a, a, a young child yeah, exactly, right? is in charge of it. I want to go to dinner! I want to have flashing lights and sirens take me to dinner! Uh, 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 sir, uh, we're not allowed to do that. Why not? Why? I want to do it. Like, it's, it's like a, it, it literally oh, is like man. a child. It's like a child. Uh, no, I no. want to give a pay raise to my two good friends. <laughs> sir, you can't do that. Do it anyway, or I'm going to throw a fit. And then, the, and, then it, and, and then it happens. I think that's what he sounds like. It's pretty good. Did right? you isolate that audio? Where's yeah. that from? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are also questions raised about a request that Mr. Pruitt be issued a bulletproof sport utility vehicle. Hell yeah. With so-called flat tires that will keep a vehicle moving even when sustaining gunfire. And they challenged Mr. Pruitt's expanded security detail of approximately 20 members, three times the size of his predecessors. Okay. <laughs> Unlike his most recent counterpart under Mr. Obama, Gina McCarthy, Mr. Pruitt has security officials follow him wherever he travels and also stay on duty overnight. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. I know that this is a town of big can't. egos. I can't. Okay. I know that this is a town of very large, inflated, usually overinflated egos. But for the head of the EPA <laughs> to <sighs> start, like, expanding this stuff and making it like what what he wants it to be is i mean like the numbers are there right like they they've got all the security they could possibly handle already and it's not enough for him and it's not even a matter of like i need this so that i feel safe or i need this because there have been threats against me or it's just he just wants it just because yeah just exactly and the the crazy part is is that the initial defense that he gave about all of these private trips and the bulletproof everything is that he's getting these threats from people and he you see can't just be flying in coach because people recognize him yeah no other cabinet member for any other president has ever had a similar problem i guess huh i mean who is out there recognizing scott pruitt he looks like the generic white man he is who's like gina mccarthy who, again, was Obama's predecessor, is much more recognizable yeah. than Scott Pruitt. I, I don't, but let's, so, so this is just the latest, uh, the latest revelations in Scott Pruitt's lavish sp spending. But I just want to remind folks that it comes in the heels of reports last week that Pruitt had been renting an apartment for $50 a night over a six-month period from the wife of a lobbyist, that lobbyist's client later received approval for a pipeline. Of course, that's just a coincidence, you see. Um, $50 a night in a nice neighborhood right around the Capitol uh, is, of course, far below market value. Uh, and so there are questions swirling around that kind of arrangement. And he also had, and this was maybe the biggest piece of... Um, the, the the juiciest detail we had 
uh, before this latest news news broke that he had installed a private phone booth in his office at a cost of $43,000 and also issued a $120,000 contract to a Republican opposition research fund to track and target journalists, which was later canceled. (laughs) You know, none of this is surprising. And the reason why it's not surprising is because being corrupt and being shady and wasting people's dollars is a prerequisite for working with Donald Trump. It's the kind of person you have to be to want to work for Donald Trump and the kind of person you have to be for Donald Trump to hire you. I mean, it's it's just that simple. Donald Trump uses the presidency and public dollars to enrich himself, his brand, and his family, and he ensures that everybody around him does the same. And Scott Pruitt is maybe the dumbest example because he can't even do it in a way that doesn't get him in trouble. But wait, is he is he really the dumbest? Because who's he's, the dumbest? He, well, I'm just saying. Well, sub, submit another uh, another wait, cabinet here, member. I will consider. I'm, if I'm he's not dumber. Saying, I'm not saying that there are other in the eyes of us dumber uh, cabinet members than Scott Pruitt. But we have uh, this avalanche of news about Scott Pruitt about his, as you mentioned, the uh, uh, the the place he was living, the lobbyist that was renting him this this place for fifty dollars a night, getting a couple breaks from the EPA the pay raises to his friends, all the travel, all the overspending, and yet Donald Trump still says... Scott's doing a great job where he is. So, it's it's again, it gets back to this whole thing of, like, a little kid. You you test the waters to see what you can get away with, right? You see what you, what you can do, you see what you can get in trouble for, and if you don't get any trouble for all this behavior, you're going to keep doing it. But the reason why you can get, a, get away with this behavior... To begin with, and Peter, you will understand this as a father, is because of the tone that you set for your child at the very beginning of their, you know, becoming aware of the world. If you allow your child to get away with all kinds of crazy things and grant them all kinds of crazy demands and don't reprimand them and squash that behavior— it will continue, but look, and it will grow in severity as they grow older. This is why I'd be an excellent parent. I understand this concept. <laughs> I mean, you're right. You're right. But at the same time, you know, I, we always say we can't do this of comparing what Trump does versus what Barack Obama did, right? But compared to literally any other president, if this was George W. Bush's EPA director, he would be gone. He would have been gone two weeks ago. He would yeah. have been gone a couple months ago after the after the soundproof booth. Story because most presidents can't survive it because they take the job somewhat seriously. And again, all of this Scott Pruitt news, all this avalanche of Scott Pruitt news. And again, Trump doesn't care. He again, like Scott has done a fantastic job. I think he's a fantastic person. Like he just will not reprimand him at all. And you haven't seen any real Republicans reprimand him at all. Except there are Chris- several Republicans, yeah, who called for his resignation. Maybe two or three in the House. Just a I couple. Think. Yeah. Chris Christie came out and said, I don't see uh, how he survives well, this. I, I, <laughs> he's toast. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I, I just, I don't know where it's going to go. That's why this is going to be so fascinating because 
Trump clearly likes him. Pruitt has done everything that Trump has asked him to do. And that really is all that Trump cares about, not whether or not he's doing the job, yeah. not whether or not he's being ethical, not whether or not he's bringing on bad headlines for the Trump administration. If he's loyal and he's doing what Trump wants him to do, he's pretty safe. And look, this this stuff, these crazy expenditures, this waste of taxpayer dollars is uh, a prime example of the kind of culture of corruption that Donald Trump allows to flourish in his administration. But the me to me, the greater corruption are the actions Scott Pruitt takes in his official capacity of meeting with industry lobbyists and then rolling back standards for coal power plants and for cars and uh, really undermining the environmental legacy that um, President Obama had left behind and doing so without consulting with uh, environmental groups and doing so in a way that could very well be illegal and is now being challenged in federal court. That, to me, is the real corruption because there's a direct pipeline, if you will, between what industry lobbyists desire and what Scott Pruitt performs in his job, and that's what Donald Trump is is praising. But the reason he doesn't care about all this other stuff about the bulletproof desk and the sirens in D.C. is because it's exactly <laughs> in line with how Trump behaves. And we've been told that ah, uh, you know, uh, uh, that these headlines, if they don't stop, they're going to embarrass the president. And but. What I what I'm still shocked and and taken aback by and I'm trying to to understand is for a president who ran on a campaign theme of draining the swamp and standing up for the forgotten men and women of America, how this kind of behavior, which as as Peter keeps pointing out, is just the latest example of a cabinet official wasting taxpayer dollars to enrich themselves, the very definition of swampy and corrupt and the very kind of people that Trump ran against and the very kind of themes we're told attracted blue-collar voters to Trump, how they are not throwing up their hands or something else and saying, this has to stop. How they are not calling their Republican member of Congress and saying, uh, you have to put an end to this. You have to call for his impeach uh, for his resignation or you uh, have to call for some kind of investigation. The fact that voters who voted for Trump told us that they were so attracted to these ideas of fighting for everyday Americans, for draining the swamp, for going to D.C. and shaking this up, shaking this city up. And now they're there and they're filling, overflowing the swamp in ways we haven't seen in decades, possibly ever. And those very same voters are like twirling their thumbs. I mean, you've seen the opinion polls. I haven't seen, I don't know, Peter, if you've seen different numbers. I haven't seen Trump's numbers, particularly for his base, the people, again, who voted for him because they believed he'd be draining the swamp. I haven't seen those fall in light of these stories. And no, the question I have is, why not? 
Why? How can you, as a voter who who presumably cares about corruption and swampy, swampy behavior, see reports about bulletproof desks that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and private jets and $100,000 a month memberships for private jet clubs and think it's normal and think it's okay? How can that be? Uh, tribalism, man. I guess. It's a drug. It's a powerful, powerful drug. That, that's really all I could chalk it up to. I mean, look, I, I don't want to be too uh, uh, cynical here, but if this was a Democratic president and the Democratic head of the EPA, I, I, I also think it would be handled a lot differently, just judging. Well, by, by the, yeah. Like, by all by history involved. being an indication, right? <laughs> yes. Like, everybody involved. You're right. But, like. There's just a certain amount of either side that no matter what the what what their candidate or what their president or what their person does that they will just they'll just forgive it no matter what. No I mean, what. Tom Daschle had to retract his nomination to be the head of the Department of Health and Human Services <laughs> right. in 2009, right. the very beginning of the Obama administration, because he didn't report the payments for a driver that he then paid the taxes on, and it was a huge scandal. Yeah. He didn't get the job. And he didn't get the job. And here you have people who now have the job wasting literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money firing or demoting staff members who criticize that behavior and the president of the United States who ran on a promise to rid the city of sleaze <laughs> is applauding him. Like, you could not have written or imagined or um, in any way anticipated that we would be here April 6, 2018, talking about this. And yet. And yet here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Welcome to hell. Welcome to hell. But listen, we're going to focus with uh, Rebecca Lieber, who's the reporter covering environmental politics and policy for Mother Jones, uh, on what Pruitt has done to our environment, which is a big part of this corruption story, meeting with industry insiders and basically implementing their agenda. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Igor Volsky. We'll be back. Is the Bill Press Show? That's right, Bill Press Show. Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. I have been uh, screeching, screaming, feuding about the ostentatious lifestyle that EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt is living on our public dime. And you've been telling us what you think on at BP Show on Twitter. You can also chime in on at Igor Volsky. Peter. What are Hi, the people Igor. saying? Well, we've got some comments. Uh, remember, we are tweeting, as you just mentioned, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, Kathy Valentine says, because Trump's base only watches Fox and listens slash reads conservative news outlets, the bubble is thick. Possibly true, but they did interview him, Fox News, 
what was it, two days ago, yeah. uh, and asked him these questions. And he was very, he's, he was a very uncomfortable man for for those interviews. He, he looked was sweating. Very yeah. He looked uncomfortable. Yeah. He, he looked... was not handled as well. Uh, KG's... He needs to call in Cheryl Sandberg, by the way, I decided, <laughs> to really do some good damage control. She's been, with this Facebook stuff, I was telling you before we started, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much of it is true. I haven't really been following the Facebook story, but she can do damage control like That's nobody fair. else. That's fair. Uh, KG also weighs in and says Trumpers are blinded by their identification with him. I'm not sure if that's the issue, but I think that might be part of it. Uh, and Ralph says Scott Pruitt and all Trump's other appointees are the reason we need to vote them out. Deregulation of the markets, environmental laws, privatization of the VA should fire up many to vote. There is a blue wave coming. And uh, follow up on a story I did earlier about the uh, coming hurricane season. Yes. Phil says 2010's Hurricane Igor was the most destructive storm to hit Newfoundland, so the name has been retired. Oh, no. So there will not be another Hurricane Igor. He says that also there's never been a hurricane, Peter, but the name is on one of the six rotating lists, so there's always hope. <laughs> wait, but this is really wait. I don't care about you, but this is really sad about my hurricane. hurricane. Igor, I'm never getting a hurricane. You're never gonna get. Never because it was so devastating like, in Newfoundland. How, how devastating was it? <laughs> I, I can, <laughs> can find we, out. Can we maybe do a reassessment? <laughs> sure, I can find I'll commi- out. I'll commission it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so I, I apologize. I didn't know that was the case with my storm. Sorry to our friends in Newfoundland. Uh, yeah, so I mean, to our, all of our listeners in, in Newfoundland, I'm I apologize. Joining us now in the studio is Rebecca Lieber. She's a reporter covering environmental politics and policy for Mother Jones. On Twitter, at our, uh, at uh, Reb Lieber is on Twitter. And, of course, you can read her at MotherJones.com. She's been covering all things Trump administration and all things Trump administration and the environment, which means she's been very, very busy. Rebecca, welcome. Yeah, thanks. It's good to see you. You and I are old colleagues from our Think Progress days. Yeah, definitely. Uh, where you two, you there as well, have been covering, uh, had been covering environmental issues under a different administration. Um, very, very different and a different kind of coverage. To me, the Scott Pruitt story of corruption really extends to his duties as an EPA administrator. The way he's been discharging those duties and how he has rolled back Obama's environmental legacy to benefit corporate interests who just happen uh, to be funding his political career. I think we're we're seeing the ethical scandals really just snowball and get him into trouble this, especially this past week. But uh, the environmental regulation front is really where the action has been. All year, for the last 13 months, he's rolled back or is in the process of rolling back dozens of regulations and um, changing the way the agency uses uh, science, which uh, is, I think, the underrated story here. Yeah, that that to me, let's maybe get into some of those details. What has Scott Pruitt done at the behest of industry to roll back those standards Uh, And then, of course, how has it impacted communities across the country? Uh, Well, where do we start with that? Yeah, where do Uh, we start? There's, 
Long he, list. <laughs> it is. How much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, um, there are dozens of regulations that uh, the EPA uh, put together its own list, uh, trumpeting what they've been rolling back. And uh, it's the account, I believe, last I checked, was up to nearly 60. And uh, just this week, he announced rolling back uh, fuel efficiency standards set by the Obama administration. That was happening just as all of these stories were breaking. These were the cafe standards. Yeah, and that would have doubled fuel economy by 2025, saved Americans at the pump, uh, not to mention greenhouse gases. Uh, so another major area that he's targeted are, well, of course, climate yeah. regulations. Well, I, let's let's um, get to the climate regulations. But on the CAFE standard piece, now, when I was reading that coverage, because I remember when you and I were both at Think Progress doing a lot of coverage around the Obama CAFE standards and the process they went through to reach those standards. And so it didn't surprise me, but it outraged me, I will say, to read that the way those changes came into play is the auto industry came to the White House and was like, here's what we want. What do you think, Trump? And next thing you know, the uh, EPA seems to have gone even further than what the auto industry had requested. That kind of process where industry comes in with a wish list and EPA says, no problem, uh, it is kind of outrageous and doesn't feel like the right process for making policy that will impact communities across the country. Yeah, the uh, entirety of EPA's work is based or supposed to be based in science that is written into law. And uh, we're seeing with uh, many of the decisions that Pruitt has uh has taken this past year, uh, he is contradicting the EPA's own science, the uh, standards on uh, and consensus on climate change. And for these standards, the auto industry, what's interesting here, was on board with them in 2009 uh, during their own financial crisis. Uh, oh, yeah, lobbied, that's right, because they were, had yeah. just been rescued by the Obama administration. Yeah. They were on board with these standards. These have been federal standards that they uh, would have been easier for them to follow than the patchwork that had existed. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as you pointed out, after lobbying from the industry, the Trump administration uh, says fine. And uh, that was actually there. One of the first things Pruitt and Trump did was appear at this event talking about rolling back these standards last year, which have a huge climate impact. I think that's uh, not to mention yeah. impact on Americans' wallets because we're talking about efficiency here and uh, saving uh, dollars spent on gas. So th I think th this is just one example of what Pruitt's done, but uh, one that's kind of been lost in, in all of the yeah. news about the scandals this week. And uh, the you mentioned the climate regulations that he's rolled back, including the Clean uh, Power Plant uh, initiative that was really a signature Obama climate legacy. Where does that stand? Well, uh, he he has reversed it. Uh, the the where that stands basically he uh, undoing EPA regulation, especially when it is uh, legally required by the Supreme Court and Clean Air Act. Uh, is a very long process. So this fall, he rolled out a plan for rolling back the clean power plan, which put the first cap on carbon pollution from existing power plants. And the 
basically that plan said he the EPS to come up with some new plan to target this pollution because this is again required by law. But uh, Pruitt essentially punt has been punting on any kind of regulation. If we ever did see something out of on power plants, it is likely to not be strong uh, or anywhere near where the clean power plan Very was. Likely. So um, <laughs> he likely. that uh, there's been some ongoing challenges related to it, but. Uh, for now, we uh, can say goodbye to regulation on carbon from power plants. So are those regulations now gone or are they on pause and we're waiting for this these new targets to be announced? Well, it's it's stalled. It's essentially ineffective. Um, that's also uh, the, the um, twist here is Scalia, Justice, the late uh, Justice Scalia's last act before he passed away was to uh, to vote to uh, halt the clean power plant. So that was actually not in effect even when Trump took office, which gives the EPA an extra opening for mm. saying, well, the Supreme Court stayed this. We're not going to. Uh, we can't enforce it. We're now going to take it off the books. Um, but the EPA has to address uh, climate pollution. That's something that the Supreme Court uh, had ruled if if the science supports it being a danger to public health, which the science does. And uh, so the EPA still has to do something, but they could certainly stall this as almost as long as they want. I want to ask you another question about process, the process that the EPA goes through to make these decisions about rolling back a lot of these regulations. I read in the New York Times, which I get delivered Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays to my door because I love the paper, uh, that he, Pruitt, met with industry groups, what was it, either eight more, eight times as frequently or like 15 times as frequently as environmental groups it surprised me to know that he even met with environmental groups. And do you know anything about how those meet? I mean, I can imagine that the meetings with the industry groups are like, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, what you want? I got you. I got you covered. How do the meetings with the environmental groups go? Um, and what are the, who are the environmental groups who are meeting with him? Yeah, he he met uh, the ones that he's met with tend to be the, the conservation uh, groups or um, um, let's see some examples. Uh, the last year, the Audubon Society was was one that had a surprise meeting. Um, but he's he's not meeting with uh, the groups that uh, are the biggest advocates on climate change, on uh, regulating air pollution to protect public health, um, or his the. Let's see. I think the number was he's met with industry 18 times as much as environmental oh, groups 18. It's in, 18. in 2017. Uh, he and it's not just the meetings, but he has staffed the EPA uh, with industry allies and former lobbyists. And um, it's it's not just in the official capacity of these meetings that he's he has in industry has his ear, but it's it's really all walks of life and. As we've we've found out this week uh, or in the last few weeks, is he was living in a lobbyist condo as well. For fifty dollars a night, a real dream. 
if you can get it. I actually, so when I saw <laughs> that story, that rent. Yeah. Right, no, no, this is what I'm saying. When I saw that story that he was only paying $50 a night, I calculated how much I pay a night for my rent, and it is higher than $50 a night. Yeah. <laughs> I was like committed to befriending more lobbyists. Um, so he's also, uh, you write uh, on Mother Jones in a piece titled Scott Pruitt Was Always an Ethical Nightmare, duh, um, <laughs> that uh, he's also asking industry to lobby the White House for, to roll back Obama initiatives and appearing maybe by video link at their uh, conferences and conventions and urging them to do this kind of advocacy. Is this in violation of, of ethical rules? I mean, I haven't heard any administration official uh, kind of engaged in, in that kind of, I, I guess, advocacy. Yeah, Democrats uh, called attention to this. Uh, it happened uh a couple times last year, one was uh, asking coal miners to tell the president to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Another case uh, was telling the the beef industry to lobby against clean water standards. And uh, Democrats talked about this, um, but I think there have been a lot of his a lot of scandals, a lot of cases where he might have broken the law that uh, didn't get the same amount of attention we're now seeing to uh, the latest the latest controversies. <laughs> but the, it's it's been I don't even know if slow burn it might be uh, underrating uh, how much uh, what he's done done this past year. But uh, there have been a lot of controversies. And I think uh uh, examples like this, like uh, breaking, potentially breaking lobbying rules uh, as a government official, uh, just kind of fly by when we're getting inundated with news about yeah. the White House. Well, let's maybe break through some of this noise because, yes, there's so much he's done and there's all of these uh, stories now about the crazy expenses that he's charging. But as you look at his reign so far, what do you think is his most destructive act when it comes to our environment? Uh, well, he's we didn't even get into the the range of air pollution and water rules that he has taken aim at. And those are certainly important. But I think uh, a few actions that tend to be underrated is how he's changed how science is used uh. at the EPA. And that uh, has far-reaching effects that uh, that impacts all of these different areas. Um, so a few examples are uh, how he has reshaped uh, the EPA's advisory boards to uh, stack with more industry allies to tell the EPA that it's okay not to necessarily not to uh, link air pollution with public health risk. That's what a few of the people he posted uh, would have argued in the past. And another case that he was floating just before these scandals hit uh, was taking up uh, House, over, uh, House Science Chair Lamar Smith's bill to limit the kinds of science the EPA could use to put forward regulation. Uh, so Lamar Smith's effort has calls it secret science. Uh, oh. And essentially what Pruitt has wanted to do, and he's been talking about this, uh, I imagine their timing on doing this is a little changed with the news lately, but he wants to limit uh, 
air pollution studies, for example, and water pollution studies uh, and and essentially take them out of the equation when the EPA considers what it should be doing on smog, on uh, particulate matter, and on even situations like lead. They would be limited in the kinds of studies they could look at. And what is, okay, so so clearly to an average person, (laughs) this sounds outrageous because you should obviously consider the impacts of pollution when you're making pollution rules. But what is the rationale for doing that that isn't we are an evil industry and we just want to be able to make money without being responsible for what we do to the environment? Well, uh, Pruitt and Lamar Smith's argument would be uh, that this is for transparency's sake, that uh, the these health studies rely on public health data that is protected by uh, medical privacy laws. And uh, their argument, this is is this is for transparency's sake. The, the problem with that is uh, it because this relies on medical data, there's just limits on what uh, what kind of data uh, scientists could make public, and that's one piece of what they would require with this kind of policy. It would it would just take out of the equation uh, the the strongest links between pollution and health threats, and uh, coincidentally, it's, yeah, sure. and it's certainly uh, it it would depend how how Pruitt would craft it, and that has been what uh, we've been waiting on more details about. But it uh, it would certainly make it a lot easier for the EPA to not regulate or at least soften and, and uh, give industry a pass. So how much of this is reversible? Like, let's say, you know, the Trump administration isn't reelected in 2020 and you have a different administration with a completely new set of priorities. Has he, as Scott Pruitt, changed the very infrastructure and foundation of the EPA and all of all of these commissions to a degree that it would be either like very difficult and take a long period of time for an administration that cares about the environment to come in and address all of that. I guess what I'm asking is how far down the road are we in in, um, in rolling back some of the environmental progress we've made? How easy is it going to be to to bring us back to, to a place where we actually care about the water and the air that we breathe and drink? Yeah. Well, we talked about how he's changing science and the other point um, that I think of of talking about permanent damage uh, yeah. here is is uh, the staffing issue at the EPA and how uh, basically Pruitt has um, he put this on his his checklist of things he accomplished in 2017 uh, that he achieved Reagan era levels of staffing at the EPA and he under under his reign <laughs> at the EPA we've seen hundreds of experts uh, senior staff and scientists leave uh, sometimes taking buyouts sometimes for out of bad yeah. morale and the 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 kind of shift we've seen uh, in in losing trust in an institution and uh, people being driven out of 
these jobs where they've worked on water regulation for years and years. Um, when I talk to sources, it's a real loss of expertise. Yeah. A real kind of brain. What, what's it called? Brain leave. Brain leave. Uh, what am I brain, saying? Brain, brain drain. Suck. Yeah. Brain drain. Thank you. <laughs> the, you did not help at all. Continue yeah. When, and when I talk to <laughs> when when I talk to uh, EPA uh, staff and and staff who've recently left uh, in this environment, that's that's consistently what they point to as the most frightening thing mm. looking out um past the Trump administration of what he's doing here um that they're essentially going to set the EPA back pulling the EPA back um in years of work um that's not so easy to just pick up and take yeah. uh where the Obama administration left off um and the other piece of i think the permanent damage here um when we talk about pollution and climate change um, and these issues. We're talking about people's lives and their estimates of the the tens of thousands of people who have asthma attacks every year, who have premature deaths um, due to uh, these issues. And of course, climate change, which uh, we uh, are already, we are behind on where we should be to reduce greenhouse gases if we want to keep, stay below two degrees Celsius of warming. And um, delay is its own tactic. So by pushing um, pushing this, essentially punting to a future administration, uh, industry is getting what it wants here because delay is its own tactic. Yeah. And um, there is damage in the meantime. We're not. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that people are affected by by this, um, even if uh, even if the EPA were to reverse course. And have we, on that point, about people, real lives, real people being impacted by what he's doing, what are the best examples of that? And do we have any kind of number of how many people have been impacted by what Pruitt has already been able to accomplish? Uh, wow, a, n a number. I don't have that. That would be, that's a really interesting question. I think when you look at these regulations that he's rolled back, the EPA has done estimates of the public health benefits. So uh, when we're talking millions of dollars in public health benefits and the lives saved, um, if you add that up, I haven't done that calculation. Um, but I think um, you see uh, one example, I think, of where people are impacted, um, I, we saw this in real time when there's a public health, when there's a when there's a crisis and a disaster, uh, the EPA's role only becomes more important. Yeah. We saw that with the hurricanes last year. Uh, Pruitt, while uh, while the hurricanes were were occurring and people were were um, coping with what happened, and the EPA. Uh, role there was to test water to uh, to make sure that um, people that uh, the air quality was okay. Um, Pruitt was bragging on conservative radio for the throughout that um, about rolling back Obama regulations. And meanwhile, there was one example was a chemical plant that had a fire and the first responders uh, didn't. Um, have the information that they needed to um, respond to that. And one, Pruitt had rolled back a regulation uh, earlier last year that would have uh, expanded the information that first responders got in situations like chemical plant explosions. 
And um, I think that's just one one mm-hmm. example, but a telling one where uh, these these rollbacks have immediate effects. And um, I think it's it it's escalated when there is a real time disaster and uh, hurricanes happen. There are going to be future disasters. Not Hurricane Igor, but apparently yeah. other hurricanes will happen. places <laughs> like Flint uh, and Flint are still struggling with clean water. Yeah. And um, the question is, what what is the EPA? capability in that situation. Let me just ask you very quickly about Pruitt's political ambition. If he survives this uh, latest barrage of headlines and scandals, the president just yesterday said he believes in him. Great guy, Pruitt. What are What is the reporting about how he sees himself moving forward, our EPA administrator? I uh, wrote uh, a recent profile on Scott Pruitt for Mother Jones and talked to friends, acquaintances, um, uh, experts in Oklahoma. Uh, everyone saw him and as having a future beyond the EPA yeah. and always seeing himself as ah. uh, having bigger a bigger role than beyond the EPA. Of course, he's he he has uh, been interested in Sessions' job. He uh, there's rumors he sees himself as a future president. Um, if All not, right, Rebecca Lieber, she's a reporter for Mother Jones. Igor Volsky, quick break. Stay with us. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yeah, we got it all here on The Bill Press Show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. Scott Pruitt and everybody else who's evil, I guess. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press this Friday, April 6th, 2018. By the way, YouTube.com backslash The Bill Press Show is where you're watching. If you want to plug into the show... On Twitter, at BP Show, give us all of the comments, or at Igor Volsky, I might check my phone here, and uh, and see what you think um, about Pruitt and about, uh, we're going to move to here, uh, Rex Tillerson and his legacy uh, at the State Department, a short tenure, but one that I think is emblematic of how Trump is approaching the government. We'll get into all of that, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news news. out there. Okay, so uh, I don't consider NASCAR a sport. Me neither. Another sports story, Peter, Well, NASCAR is not sports, but it's about NASCAR because there is a hot new racer in NASCAR. His name is Giovanni Bramante. He is is he from, hot like hot or hot like fast? Like what's the? It's really hot like hot like fast, high high commodity, I, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing though. Because I might be interested. <laughs> here's the thing though. Well, well, here's the thing. Yes. He's 14 years old. Oh, God. 
you really you really put yourself in a bind there, didn't you, Igor? There is wow. he's a NASCAR <laughs> racer who's 14 years old. Uh, now I have a lot of questions, obviously, about how. Well, about you and your taste, yes, but also how a 14-year-old can get out there and drive a freaking race car. I don't know. I, let's just move to a different story. Yeah, this you know what? You're right. We should probably. Yeah, we should we're, probably we're moving move on. on. Yeah. We've talked a lot in recent days about Facebook and all the problems they've been yes. having. Well, Twitter also continues to be a dumpster fire. But here is some good news. Uh, there has been uh, 1.2 million accounts that have been deleted from Twitter since 2015. Because of the bots, right? They're getting rid of the because, bots. Well, because of the bots and, but specifically in this case, because of terrorism. There were Some of them were bots, as you point out, but they were promoting terrorism over a two-year stretch. Uh, they've gotten rid of 1.2 million in those three years, but they say uh, 274,000 of those accounts were purged just in the last six months of 2017. So over a million different Twitter users had to be kicked off because they were promoting terrorism. Yeah, this is something social media companies, digital companies, really are just now grappling with. I remember a couple of years ago, we were having those conversations. What can they be doing better? What should they be doing? And it's good to see that they're at least, you know, taking some steps to, to address the, yeah. the spread of all of this through social media. Yeah, no, totally. And uh, Laura Ingram is still on vacation. Here's the thing, though. Another sponsor just dropped her. Is it up to 20? Uh, I don't know what the total uh, number is. I'll see if I can find that for you. But Ace Hardware announced yesterday that they will no longer advertise on the Ingram angle on Fox News. Quote from the uh, an unnamed spokesperson for the company said, I can confirm that we do not have any plans to nationally advertise on Ingram's show in the future. They had two ads on her show in the month of March, uh, including one that, that came the day before she launched now, her tirade against David Hogue. B Bill O'Reilly lost 21 sponsors before FedEx, no, Fox News gave him the axe. Yes. She, I believe, is at 19 or 20. I think Ace is 19. 19. Well, there you go. And one other final quick story, an Andy Warhol painting is up for auction in London. It is an Elvis Presley print that he did, and it is on sale. It is estimated to, sale with a price, to sell with a price tag of $30 million. Oh, not not bad. bad. Not bad. I don't know if you're a big art fan or Andy Warhol fan, but if you got $30 million laying around, Hey, what the hell? You this could, is a good tip. You Thank get, you. Yeah, there you go. You could get yourself a, into an it. original Warhol. This is the Bill Press Show. Bill Press Show. I'm Igor Rolski filling in for Bill Press this Friday, 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 April 6, 2018. Cannot believe we're already in April of 2018, but here we are, and it's still cold slash warm slash sometimes nice here in D.C. Uh, joining us in studios, Nahal Tusi. She's the foreign affairs correspondent 
for Politico on Twitter at Nahal Tusi and online, of course, at Politico.com. Nahal, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, I see you have a jacket. You're going to have to take the jacket off because it's going to be 70 today. But then tomorrow you might need a warmer jacket because it's going to be really cold and it's going to snow. Yeah, everything in our life these days feels very unpredictable. Very now. unpredictable. Even the weather. This is a good point, that the politics is unpredictable, the weather is unpredictable. What's going on? What's going on? Does Trump control the weather? Does he? Oh, this is to be an interesting segment. <laughs> let's let's book that, Peter. Uh, I'm, sure that, I'm, I'm sure there's a conspiracy theory Done. out there somewhere <laughs> that Trump does control the weather, and they would love to talk to us about it. <laughs> You have a piece in. Let's just turn into an Alex Jones segment. Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. Yeah, it's the Bilderbergs. Is everybody controlling the weather? The Trumps are controlling the weather. We know. We know. We uh, look. We have the documents to prove it. We've all seen them. You've read them. Ooh, that is really. That's pretty good. It's my one impression. Peter's been doing impressions all all morning. It's for pretty us. impressive. Yeah, my one impression. Pretty good. Yeah, uh, gee, loudmouth, beefy white guy. I think I can. I think I can nail that impression. <laughs> I think I got that one down. <laughs> I mean, he's clean shaven, though. Okay. You have a piece on Politico titled Rex Tillerson's $12 million army of consultants. Right. I saw this yesterday. I tweeted it yesterday. And I was like, surprise, surprise, Rex Tillerson spent his 10-year, short-lived tenure at the State Department Figuring out how to use tax, how to give taxpayer dollars to private entities. Is anybody surprised? No. Okay. $12 million army of consultants. Please tell me what were those consultants doing? Well, first of all, the headline probably should have said at least $12 million. Oh, mm, that's good. That makes us feel better. <laughs> that's what I That's what I could pretty much establish, and that's what uh, the State Department confirmed to me. And these particular consultants uh, we uh, were brought on to uh, help Rex Tillerson figure out how to redesign, uh, reshape, restructure, whatever you want to call it, the State Department with the goal of streamlining it and saving it money. Oh, so they told him to fire everybody. Well, <laughs> that's I what think, I'm gathering. The, well, to be honest, he kind of was uh, pushing people out before the consultants oh, okay. really weighed in. So uh, it's really pre gaming for them, if you will. <laughs> It was a very it's very interesting uh, this, the process for this because like literally the the way I got the story involved me meeting an anonymous source at a prominent Washington landmark in the freezing weather <laughs> to pick oh, up documents. Do tell us more. Well, I can't tell you much more than that, but it was just because like... the weather was freezing. We actually don't know when it was. It could have been yesterday. It could have been <laughs> yesterday. Tomorrow it could be tomorrow. <laughs> um. So, okay. Now, I am fascinated by consultants charging a lot of money for uh, consulting on how to better run a State Department, particularly one that under the Obama administration, whatever criticism you may have, uh, was successful in reaching some pretty significant landmark agreements, be they with Iran or Paris or or whatever else. So uh, let's maybe step back. And let me ask you, what Rex Tillerson's philosophy going into the job was? What did he think was the problem with the State Department that he thought his army, his $12 million army, could then solve? Uh, Well, uh, just to be clear, uh, you know, plenty of leaders in government have turned to outside consultants. And Tillerson, uh, he came from ExxonMobil. He was very familiar with kind of the whole corporate structure. And he wanted to make 
uh, the State Department uh, more efficient. He kind of viewed it as being too bloated and, and somewhat outdated in the way that it was structured. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people at the State Department, probably the majority, agree with him. Uh, they were actually really happy with the idea that they could find new ways to organize their institution and also processes involved, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just about like whether you're going to have an embassy here or a particular bureau covering an issue. It was also about whether you were going to have uh, you know, a faster security clearance process or whether you were just going to be able to have better technology. I mean, last I checked, I think there are still people at the State Department using Blackberries. You know, oh. so a lot of people were hoping that this was going to lead to modernization on a lot of levels. And you know, to some extent, it still might. The The whole redesign process has kind of evolved into something that's just much more about upgrading IT for the most part. And people people want that. But what ended up happening was that he kind of was trying to uh, reinvent the wheel because people had already done studies on this. There had been reports. There had been, you know, task forces looking into this. And he basically came in and ignored all that stuff. Why? Why did he ignore that stuff? And this is this is kind of the central mystery. It's like... He ignored a lot of existing things. He ignored the experts at the State Department who had decades of experience on topic areas like, you know, Iran. And instead, it was just this mentality of we know better. You know, I'm going to bring my own people in. We're going to start from scratch on everything, not just process and personnel, but also policy. Yeah. Uh, and. He just thought, you know, we're just going to start from scratch. We're going to have this listening tour. We're going to do a survey. We're going to find out what people want. When in reality, if he had just honestly talked to like five people, you know, <laughs> even people who aren't even there, like they could have told him, you need to fix these four things. So was it an arrogance that he had coming in? I mean, this wasn't a man with great experience in diplomacy or international affairs. And so I can't imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, that he had a grand vision of uh, of the uh, maybe he did of of either of the mission of the State Department or the way it should be organized internally. I mean, I imagine he came in and had to learn a lot of that stuff. This is again, it's one of those weird mysteries. Like he said himself at a town hall, I think it was in December, with State Department employees. Look, when I came in, I didn't really know what you guys did and what what you guys were about, and that was really kind of a a stunning admission. But I think what drove people crazy what it was it was like he didn't really ask them. Right. Instead, <laughs> instead he brought in a few people, uh, some of whom were like administration choices. Uh, he largely isolated himself. He um, had this one unit called policy planning that basically tried to do everything that the entire State Department was supposed to be doing traditionally. And so he, it, I don't know if it was arrogance or if it was just this idea that, you know, we know better and, and, and also perhaps, and this is one possibility, is that he, you know, the administration itself, the White House, they didn't like the State Department. They, they have a lot of distrust of diplomats who, remember, uh, spent several years under Hillary Clinton. Uh, there's this one theory out there that Trump views the State Department as Hillary. Oh. And that that's, you know, but, but he we still thinks he still we, thinks she's running it. <laughs> so there's but there is a sense that this is like a Democratic stronghold. We can't really trust these people. And perhaps Tillerson was like, well, I have to be careful, even if he himself personally thought, you know, he should have used the building more. He was probably held back by the White House to some extent. Now, again, I'm speculating on some of this. Mm -hmm. I 
I've never actually, you know, he's never spoken to me. I, hey, Rex, if you're hearing this, <laughs> I still want to talk. I got lots of free time um, now. But also, you know, come on this program, right? He'd like to talk to you as well. But but I will say this, you know, people who have been in the room with him, they feel like he's a genuine guy that he earnestly wanted to make things better. They don't they don't know of any, you know, malicious motivation on his part, except, and I'm not saying this is malicious, but there was definitely a sense that he felt like. There was just too much money at the department, and it just could be leaner, meaner. And again, that's something a lot of people, even within the department, would agree with. So, okay, back to the $12 million Army consultant, or at least at least $12 million <laughs> Army of consultants. What did we, as a country, get for that $12 million? We're still trying to figure that out. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> what we got was a lot of consultants going in and talking to and helping State Department employees put together working groups, put together PowerPoints, analyze data about what they can do to improve processes at state. A lot of those processes involve information technology, human resources, that sort of thing. I got to tell you, look, I tried to figure out what has been accomplished. And part of the problem, and I'm just not going to lie here, is that the the material that I have, and this, to be clear, these were Deloitte consultants for the most part, and another company called Insignium, for the most part. And the material is written in consultant speak, like you can't understand it. I mean, I kept reading it. I'm like, okay, so you're trying to trying to do what? Like, so I think perhaps if we see, you know, perhaps a clo- a quicker movement to things like the use of the cloud you know, within their technology. I mean, really, that, it was like that sort mm-hmm. of like gr- uh, granular type yeah. of thing. Um, then that is something that, you know, in the long run will improve the lives of these diplomats who do feel like in a lot of ways that they are, you know, in, they're stuck in this like bureaucratic encumbered system that can move a lot faster. So maybe there are some things that could have come. But here's the catch. A lot of the things that they decided they need to do were things that had already earlier you know, been decided they needed to do and that were already happening. I mean, there was already modernization efforts at the State Department to fix the technology, including moving to the cloud. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that was big interesting. Yeah. I mean, the story of mine is it's pretty long, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. And, you know, I had people telling me we already plan to move on to the cloud. We already, you know, decided to move to Microsoft Office 35, uh, 365. But the redesign people want to accelerate this timeline because they want to have a quick win. But we're actually worried that they're pushing us to do this so fast. We're going to uh, fall down on our security issues. Oh, so they're they're worried about mm. these diplomat. Uh, the, I'm sorry, these uh, consultants pushing too hard to have a win, and that it could endanger their security. <sighs> Let me ask you. <laughs> after that, um, these are long confidence answers. confidence boosting uh, answer. <laughs> More broadly, about Rex Tillerson's tenure, uh, two things. One is, what do you view outside of this 12 million army of consultants? What do you view as his biggest accomplishment um, as our Secretary of State? And second, I'm trying to figure out where the rift between Rex Tillerson and Trump occurred, because I remember when he was first nominated, it felt like, and the reporting was that this was a fellow businessman and somebody that Trump could really respect and see as a peer and fresh eyes and from the business world and exactly kind of in the mold of somebody Trump would want. So 
let's get to that. But let me first ask you, we look at his, what, has been a year, a little more than a year? Roughly that he, 14 that he, months. 14 months. Yeah. What has he accomplished? What can we... What are we going to read in his obituary, for instance? Well, I think in his obit, it'll be, you know, former ExxonMobil CEO and, you know, short-lived <laughs> uh, State Department Secretary of State. Um, I think he would probably say that one major accomplishment was what they call the North Korea pressure campaign. And that was mm. a largely State Department-led campaign to bring a lot of countries in the world to exert more pressure on North Korea to slow down or stop its nuclear program and to come and try to resolve that issue with the United States and other interested parties. So they pushed for sanctions. Um, they asked other countries to reduce their diplomatic contacts to basically not allow North Korean laborers to work there. I mean, there were all sorts of things that they did. And to a large degree, I think that has you know accomplished a lot. I mean, people stepped up and North Korea is, you know, it doesn't really say it's going to give up its nuclear program, but it has said it's willing to talk. So I think that would be one thing he would say as a big accomplishment. That's a big accomplishment, but clearly not enough for Donald Trump, who removed him via tweet. Um, give us more of that background about what led to this rift and, of course, his eventual firing. Well, at the end of the day, Tillerson is a fairly moderate establishment Republican on foreign policy issues. He you know, he sees, he understands the importance of backing your words up with force, but he also thinks it's important to pursue diplomacy uh, with a hard edge. So, you know, he might not have liked the Iran nuclear deal, but he understood the value of trying to stay in it for now. Same thing with the Paris Climate Agreement. He, uh, he said basically, like, look, you know, we should stay in this because if we pull out of it, it's going to threaten our alliances. People are going to be unhappy with us. He saw the bigger picture. But that just didn't match what Trump wanted and what Trump had promised on the campaign trail. So over time, these fissures added up. There was one other thing, and this doesn't get enough attention, in my opinion, which is that Tillerson and Jared Kushner did not see eye to eye on a number of issues. Mm. Kushner was heavily involved on a number of fronts, including in the Middle East, in dealings with Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, other things that... Uh, basically interfered with Tillerson's ability to do his job. And those two were not fans of each other, and I'm sure that that added to the strain. Is uh, is Kushner still involved in those foreign policy pieces, or has his portfolio shrunk? Uh, I, I would... I'm not entirely certain how involved he is. His security clearance has been downgraded yeah, last I checked. Right. <laughs> uh, it's difficult to do that work, right. I Right, but, but our understanding is that, you know, like, he was, like, talking on WhatsApp to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, right? So, <laughs> I mean, oh. he, you oh, know, yeah. this is, As one this does. is the thing. Modern diplomacy, ladies and gentlemen. But this is the thing. Like, he just kind of was this, like, uh, X factor in all this, this variable, and... I don't. I don't think he's necessarily stopped, but I have no proof to that. You have uh, another great story at Politico.com uh, that is titled "Foreign Visas Plunge Under Trump." The United States is granting fewer visitor visas to people from around the world, not just Muslims, as President Donald Trump ratches up his anti-immigration rhetoric. Now, by one measure, the U.S. granted 13 percent. Fewer visitor visas over the past 12 months when compared with fiscal year 2016. It's a downward trend that appears to have accelerated in the past six months. On the campaign trail, we heard from Donald Trump about cracking down on undocumented immigrants. 
He specifically said when answered that he's not going to go after legal immigration sometimes, and then sometimes he said he would. <laughs> but here he he seems to be delivering on a promise or on a kind of a wink of a promise to hardline anti-immigrant nativist groups that he's going to keep foreigners out of the country. Well, the, the interesting thing about this story is that these numbers are actually for non-immigrant visas. Mm. So these are for tourists. Oh, for even for these tourists. These are for stu students. These are for people who are coming here for a while. And even there, they are having a harder time being allowed into this country. And if we, if you look at the immigrant yeah. numbers, and I did, but I didn't mention them in this story, those are down as well. Yeah. Uh, but these are for basically people who, you know, keep our higher education industry afloat or or help, you know, bring in tourism dollars. And people, it's just getting harder uh, on a number of levels. Procedurally, um, they're asking, you know, they're, they're doing everything from like asking people to supply what the last like five to 15 years of their social media data to just putting a lot more hurdles in the place for people who want to just come here for a visit. And what are the countries that are being impacted by by by, by this policy? So for sure, the travel ban countries, right? Yeah. We're talking Iran. Iran's pretty much down to hardly anybody anymore. Um, uh, uh, Syria, Sudan, uh, uh, well, Somalia, Sudan was on the travel ban list. It no longer is, but it's still being affected. Um, the Arab countries overall, the Muslim countries, definitely down mm -hmm. roughly 19%. Uh, but putting those aside, I looked at several other places, Haiti, Venezuela, uh, China, like Cabo Verde. I even looked at that, you know, and you see these downward trends in people being able to get visas um, compared to previous years. What about predominantly white countries? Uh, that's hard to define. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, but like, which one did he? Which one did he like? Nor Norway, Norway. <laughs> right? That's the one he preferred. Uh, well, here's the thing. If you look at it, those, are a little bit hard to calculate uh -huh. because Norway and many of the European countries. Let's let's refer to it that way. Yeah. Um, they are under the visa waiver program, oh. so in theory, they don't even need oh. visas to come necessarily mm -hmm. for a lot of these issues. So we we didn't calculate those. Because, I see. Yeah. Um, it's it's just tougher it, it, to tougher. Calculate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and what's the reason that they give? for why they're granting fewer visas. Well, they, that's not like we're racist. <laughs> national security. Oh, okay. Uh, basically, they yeah. say, look, you know, we're even though there are about... screening processes in place, I imagine, yes. before one is granted a visa. Yes, even if you are from a, are from a visa waiver country, that doesn't mean you come here without screening. I mean, there've always been tough screening procedures in place. Uh, for coming here on a lot of fronts, uh, but no, it's it's they they say it's national security. They say they want to keep out, uh, you know, potential people who might use those uh, tourist visas or whatever to come here and uh, do terrible things. It's and they're just making it harder in that case for everyone uh, who wants to come here. What about Russia? Is it easier or harder to come to the to the United States from Russia under Trump? Uh, well, I guess if you're a spy, in <laughs> theory, it's harder. <laughs> um, you know, I'd have to look th at those numbers again uh, and, and check them again. But the thing that's interesting about these visa laws and regulations is that they are supposed to be reciprocal. Yeah. Right. So if we're going to make it harder for Brazilians or Russians or whatever to come here, they're going to try to make it harder for us to go there. Now, I don't know if there's some big, you know, desire for people to go to to Russia from America to hang out or whatever, but 
it's going to be tougher. Is there uh, a, a case to be made that part of the reason why we see these visas plunge is because given the welcoming new tone that the Trump administration has set for foreigners, that fewer people are interested in traveling to the United States? That is entirely possible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the one of the tricky things. The State Department until last year did not release monthly totals. It only gave annual totals. Did the consultants not <laughs> mandate that? <laughs> well, and then the, but the other thing is they, they don't release... Um, they release very limited amounts of information on how what their re- refusal rates are for visas, uh, and they don't release any information about how many people actually apply. I see. And so, and I believe me, I have begged for these numbers, and yeah. they just totally blow me off. Um, and this is the thing: so trying to figure out exactly what's driving it, it's hard to tell, but it's probably a combination of both. I mean, we know for sure that the administration is making it harder, and. It's entirely possible a lot of people think, you know what, it's just too hard, so I'm just right. not going to even bother to apply. Right, yeah. And it's an expensive process, and it's oh, a yeah. cumbersome process. Oh, I mean, very... as someone who's immigrated from country to country to country, it's not a, not an easy um, not, not an easy thing really, to do. It is a really, really hard process, and especially if you're in a country like Iran that doesn't have relations with the United States, diplomatic ones. Um, you have to go to other countries to be able to go to U.S. consulates uh, just to apply or get your interview or whatever. I mean, you can't you can't you in your own country, so you have to go elsewhere. Um, so it's tough. It's very tough. And you mentioned the impact on um, on higher education. What are the other kind of maybe industries or professions that are being impacted by these numbers tumbling? Okay, so for instance, um, if you are in the tech sector and you want to have hire some temporary workers on certain visas to come and fill in for you, or or not just the tech sector. I mean, any any kind of industry where you rely on people to come and work for a while and you don't promise them like immigration residency or anything like that, um, then you're you're going to be affected. Uh, there's you know there's a range of visas. It's kind of like bewildering how many there are. Um, but they all, you know, to some extent, and sometimes, you know, the numbers are very small. I mean, we're talking like a few people, you know, from Turkmenistan coming uh, in, in a given year. But it can be really it can be really tough. And is this also the um, uh, the 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 I guess highly educated professions like the, some in the medical profession who may come here? Are those also being impacted? It, You know, it's possible. I think it depends on whether they're coming on an immigrant visa or a non-immigrant uh, visa. And it just, you know, you'd have to break those down specifically. We, The numbers, uh, the State Department, they release the numbers in a way that makes it really hard to figure it out. Like, it took us forever because, for instance, they'll release the numbers on, say, Afghanistan, but they'll break it down by every visa type, and they won't give you a full uh, sum of Afghanistan. So we had to go and sum up all the numbers for all these countries ourselves, you know, over like each month for 12 months to figure out some of these trends. And they they try to help, but then they don't. It feels like a lot of math. Uh, A lot of math. Yes. I should hire a consultant. <laughs> By the way, if I can interrupt for a moment, we do have a little bit of breaking news I wanted to just throw in. Uh, President Donald Trump will not participate in this year's White House Correspondents' Dinner. Oh. But, hmm. but 
Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders will represent the administration at the head table this year. Uh, that is according to Margaret Tollov, the White House Correspondents Association president. She put oh, a statement this morning okay. saying the Trump administration got back to them, said it's a no it's for a Donald no. Trump, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders will go. Nahal, are you going to the dinner? No. I. Now that Trump isn't going, or were you not going to begin with? <laughs> I've never been, you know, in that elite group uh, that's been <laughs> that's been uh you know headed to that dinner so i will just uh, i'll read about it after i've told this story a couple times a couple years ago i went and i got he's in the elite group <laughs> well bill preston invited me but i got profoundly stoned before i went because i don't do well in these <laughs> to everyone's surprise i don't do very well in these in these type of situations but it was the year that the cameras were trained like right on my table oh and so i was wandering around the room and everyone was saying like i, I was wondering to myself i was like god I, I think i got too high and someone actually texted a picture of me from c-span looking incredibly high and i was like oh no oh no i made a horrible mistake Oh well. So don't do that if you don't go. do that if you go. Yeah. Plus you're t- you're going to be too busy calculating the numbers anyway, so yeah. you you won't you yes. won't have time. I I, no, I, no I became a journalist to avoid math, and yet <laughs> Nahal Tusi, she's a foreign affairs correspondent for Politico on Twitter at Nahal Tusi, and of course you can read her great work at Politico.com. I'm Igor Volsky. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back here on the Bill Press Show. is the Bill Press Show. Bill Press Show this Friday, April 6, 2018. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. By the way, if you want to weigh in on our conversation, do that, please, and do it on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show on Twitter. I'm also at Igor Volsky on Twitter. And if you're watching us on YouTube.com backslash The Bill Press Show, go ahead and click that subscribe button. Lots of great content up there, right, Peter, of uh, the show, of special clips. So much stuff. So so much much stuff. So much stuff. Um, Tim Mack, he is a reporter covering national security and politics for National Public Radio, NPR. He joins us in studio. He's on Twitter at Tim K. Mack. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's been a while. Been a while. Glad to have you back. Uh, so you have to be living under a rock not to uh, read and know everything about the scandal surrounding Facebook after it was reported that it allowed Cambridge Analytica to uh, have access to, in, to, to the personal information of some 80 million plus users. That company is now in damage control. Cheryl Sandberg, uh, who's the COO, the chief operating officer, uh, did a media tour yesterday really apologizing for what uh, Facebook uh, allowed to happen and promising that her company will do better. We were given assurances by them years ago that they deleted the data. We should have followed up. That's on us. We are trying to do a forensic audit to find out what they have. We started that. The U.K. government is now doing their own investigation. They get precedent. So we're waiting. We don't know at all what data they had. 
So, Tim, let's maybe uh, pull back a little bit and give folks a bit of context about Cambridge Analytica, how it was able to pull in Facebook data and then use that data to micro-target specific ads and content towards uh, towards users, especially in the 2016 presidential election on behalf of President Trump. Right. So Cambridge Analytica, as you know, they worked on digital issues for the Trump campaign. In the 2013-2014 timeframe, Facebook was a lot different uh, now than it was then. It was a lot more... Uh, it, it gave a lot more information to these apps. I know you recall it a few years ago. Everyone was playing games and authorizing apps on their Facebook and the, and giving permissions and privacy that's settings. That's what the youngs were doing. I the, wasn't the youngs so were much, doing but, it, and yeah. people were playing various. You know, people were always trying to in, invite you to play like Bubble Busters or something like that. Uh, and no when, when, when you authorized it, you gave the app. You <laughs> yeah. gave the app. You know, uh, permission to see your friend list, to see various things about your profile, things like that. So. Uh, uh, it was not permissible to just start taking information out of Facebook for political purposes, but it was permissible for academic purposes. Uh. So Cambridge Analytica, under the guise of academic research, using a professor at Cambridge University named Alexander Kogan, did this kind of psychological study. They, you installed an app and it you answered you know, 16, 20 questions, something like that, about your personality. And then, uh, you know, Facebook, not knowing this, gave this information to Cambridge University, this Cambridge University professor who kind of secretly and against the rules mm -hmm. gave it to Cambridge Analytica, who used this information to assemble profiles of, of people. And, and Alex told users of this app, use this app to kind of find out more about you, you know, these traits will reveal more about you than your mom knows or your friends right. know. And so there were people, my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, who authorized, signed up for this app, authorized for their information to be used. But what ended up, ha what ended up happening was their friends' information also got sucked into this? Is that why the number is so large? Right, yeah. So the number of people who used this app was not 87 million people. Very it was popular. hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. Um, uh, and so what, what ends up happening is it sucks up all this information in your network as well and passes that on. And what kind of information are we talking about? Is this like favorite movies, favorite TVs, like marital status? What do they know? What kind of information did Facebook, uh, did Alex have access to that then went to Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, the exact details I'm not sure of, but it would have been the things that make Facebook information worth having, right? Yeah. It, you know, why are people, why are advertisers, political campaigns interested in Facebook information? It's interested because there are things about us that kind of indicate who we are, our propensity to vote, our propensity to vote a certain way, our propensity to buy a certain product, things like our our favorite movies, favorite TV shows, where we live, what our income is, uh, what our family or our parents' professions are. That's the sort of information that's useful to a Cambridge Analytica yeah. or useful to you know your average run-of-the-mill marketer who wants to sell you a mattress, for example. So now they, Cambridge Analytica, found this researcher after... Uh, after receiving a large investment from, was it the Koch 
brothers who invested in them? Who who there was they had a large investor, is my understanding, that they promised this that this ability to suck in the Facebook data and build these profiles. This is the Mercer family. The Mercer, Mercer family, family. Yes, yes, thank you. I knew it wasn't the Coke. It was yeah, it was it was the Mercers because they had run a pilot in Virginia in that Cuccinelli race, um, which was somewhat successful. And here they said we're gonna do this on a larger scale. They had to find a way to do it, so they found this academic who who gave them the data. I'm not sure the exact way that they did it, whether it was preconceived, whether it was preconceived that they would do this in in this, you know, uh, in this run around the rules, or whether in fact, you know, they obtained the data from this academic against the rules uh, after he had already obtained that data from users. Got it. The fact is that it was against the rules then, and it's against the rules now. So before we get to Facebook's role, which I do want to talk about. Uh, Just to continue this background, after Cambridge Analytica got the information from Alex the academic, what did it do with it? How did it use it to shape targeted messages towards individuals? So there's this this phenomenon called micro-targeting, right? Uh, And it is something that we've used in politics for a very long time because two of the most important things to any campaign is, hey, how can I – who are the people most likely to switch from candidate A to my candidate, candidate B? And also, who are the people most likely to vote that if I nudge them a little bit will leave their home and go to the ballot box on election day? Those are two very important pieces of information. And if you can develop psychological profiles of individuals, which Cambridge Analytica promised to do, uh, if you could kind of get information about every voter in America or lots of voters in America, that's a very valuable tool for campaigns. Mm-hmm. And so they then, working with uh, with the Trump administration, with Trump campaign at the time, having this Facebook information, were able to construct profiles and were able to target specific messages to specific groups that they thought would resonate based on the right. profile of yeah, the That's user. the goal. That's the whole point of Cambridge Analytica yeah. is to create these profiles and to make uh, voter persuasion and get out the vote efforts easier for campaigns. That's their whole pitch. So can you give an example of what kind of message, specific message was tailored to like what kind of user general user profile? Do we I, know do we know any specific examples? I don't know any specific examples, but the way it would be is, you know, let's say you have a, uh, you know, you have a voter who is a Democrat, but cares very strongly about, um, uh, uh, let's say, abortion, uh, and is a uh, a pro-life Democrat. You can message to them specifically on that issue if you know that that the Democratic candidate is not in line with your values and uh, get you out to the polls based on that fact. So you would maybe, in your profile of a pro-life Democrat, would market to that individual or run ads highlighting Hillary Clinton's pro-choice position, maybe under the thinking that doing so won't get that person to vote for Trump because the person, the user is a Democrat, but maybe it will... It will Keep them at home. Either and works. Keep right. them from voting. Either yeah. works. Um, whether or not that's enough to push them that that voter towards Trump or to keep them at home because they're not particularly excited about Hillary Clinton, both are both are successful strategies ultimately for for that kind of campaign. So Cambridge Analytica, after the election, I remember, took all sorts of credit for Trump's victory. Do 
we actually have a sense of how successful their work for Trump was and what kind of impact it had in key key places around the country that swung the election. They argue that they had a tremendous effect. That they are basically <laughs> they are basically the reason why Trump won, right? Yeah. If you recall, I, I'm sure great we do on this strategy. Show, <laughs> is that uh, is that Trump lost the popular vote, right? I remember but, this, <laughs> but he um, uh, but he won in the places uh, that strategically mattered, and that's why he's president mm-hmm. of the United States. Uh, Cambridge Analytica basically takes credit for targeting the places that matter, that kind of that that shaped the election in a way where Trump would come out the victor. Yeah. And uh, but, you know, the jury is out on whether or not they were all that effective and whether these sorts of methods are useful in campaigns. And it's actually very, very difficult to tell after the fact whether these kinds of methods were useful or not useful. Right. We, We don't know ultimately what swung voters to do certain things in certain places when we can't get inside the minds of them either. And there are a lot of people who are skeptical that these methods even work to begin with. And what do they say, those people who are skeptical of micro-targeting? Uh, that it's, that you, you, t- you can't break people down to these base components mm. and that human behavior is far more complicated than, than the example for exa- that, that I described, that yeah. people vote for, uh, due to a number of variables that it's difficult to discern which variables that those might be. Um, and typically this breaking people down into its component part misses a yeah. human part of all of us. Now, is there also a piece of the story that ties in the fake news phenomenon? And what I mean by that is, do we know if Cambridge Analytica targeted certain people with quote unquote fake news uh, about Hillary or about Trump to try to sway them ahead of the election. That's not a. I, I as far as I know, that's not a Cambridge Analytica story. That that is a that is a story that has roots in broader right. disinformation in the 2016 campaign. We talk about the Russian interference that happened during that election. That's the sort of uh, realm where we start talking about fake news and divisiveness that was targeted towards various groups in American society. You don't need micro targeting for that. Yeah. That's a good point. So let's talk about fake fake news as it relates to Facebook. Now, in the aftermath of the election, Mark Zuckerberg famously said that to think that Facebook uh, played a role in disseminating fake news is is silly. Uh, he has since apologized for making those remarks. I think he called him flippant or, or something like that. Um, and particularly... In the aftermath of this Cambridge Analytica scandal that they had access to this 82, 83 million people, Facebook is in this damage control mode. Let's start with um, maybe on the fake news front. What has, after realizing that their platform was used to spread fake news, what steps has Facebook taken to push back against this problem? Well, one thing they're, they're, uh, they did this week was they deactivated hundreds of accounts related to the Internet Research Agency. I don't know if you've heard of it. This is this Russian troll farm uh, that's based in Russia. And basically, that's where they came up with these Facebook groups, mm-hmm. these targeted Twitter accounts, these uh, these uh, basically full-time, these people who worked full-time to spread disinformation and wreak havoc on the American electoral process. Uh, Facebook decided this week and announced this week that they would be suspending and um, and basically deleting the accounts of hundreds of these uh, of these kinds of 
uh, internet research agency well, who related. Will presumably create new accounts or find new ways to get around that action. Yeah, this is this is an ongoing yeah, struggle, end. right? Yeah. This is one of those things uh, like um, you can make uh, a comparison to like spam and anti-spam technology, yeah, right? Yeah. They're always going to be fighting like counterfeiting money and anti-counterfeiting money. There's always, mm-hmm. once you have created this technology, there's going to be an ongoing struggle. That, or that, Once you've created this method and this is an idea that's out there, there's going to be an ongoing everlasting struggle between those who are trying to do it and those who are trying to fight it. So is there a larger systematic effort to try to go after fake news? I heard Cheryl say yesterday that they have some kind of agreement with the AP where you flag certain stories. What is that? They, they've tried to do a couple of things. They've tried to do fact-checking. Third-party fact-checking, third they're calling fact, it. Yeah. Third-party fact-checking. Facebook ultimately is very uncomfortable being the arbiter of truth. Right? They want to be a neutral, objective platform. And they get a lot of flack from both sides. Every time they make a decision, mm-hmm. whether it's to condone a certain news outlet or to reject another news outlet, they, they, it's a no, from their perspective, it's a no-win situation. right? So they, they've tried the third-party fact-checking uh, route. They're trying to give people more information about the news sources that, that, uh, that they're seeing in their feed. For example, if you hover over a news outlet now, it will show you, hey, this is what this news outlet is. It was created in uh, XYZ year. It's received this number of Pulitzers. It's got this, you know, this history of mm-hmm. reporting excellence or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's trying to give context to people. Okay. But it's one of those things where we live in an age uh, I don't know if you see this in your newsfeed, but a lot of people are just willing to share things. Mm-hmm. They're just willing to share things without, t- you know, thinking through the consequences or checking. Yeah, pe- people like Cheater just sharing everything. <laughs> all, all sorts of memes. All day long. Um, and, uh, you know, your average person, how interested are they yeah. in figuring out the veracity of what they're reading if they happen to agree with what's being put on mm-hmm. on, on the screen? I'm not sure how effective that will be. And is, are there any uh, numbers or or data to measure that effectiveness? I mean, I don't know how long that program has ha, they've how long it's been implemented for this notion that you can hover over a new source and see, new. and see who they are. So, so we don't yet know if these measures that they're taking has in any way slowed the spread of fake news. I mean, I don't even know how you would measure how you would quantify something like that. Right. In order to quantify it, you'd have to determine what's fake and what's real. Right. And we, we, and who's going to do very, that? How are you going to do that? It's very, yeah. without someone, without an arbiter, it's very hard to say, right? And it's very hard to measure fake news. We can, we, we can definitely, we know it when we see it, but we don't, we, we can't systematically uh, measure it. And that's the real challenge here that, uh, that Facebook definitely has steps that it can do to help people figure out uh, whether th- what they're reading is fake or true. Um, but ultimately, it does require steps on the consumer side yeah. to be skeptical, to be accountable, to be responsible, to, to to take in what it is that they're reading, and then make sure that if they're passing it on to friends and loved ones who are in their kind of social network, that hey, this is I, you know, I'm standing behind this. I I believe this to be true, and I I've done the minimum level of due diligence to say like. I think that this is probably something that you should see. Yeah. By the way, George W. Bush has a book called The Decider, and so I think he'd be available to decide <laughs> fake news and real news. Um, when you talk to 
advocacy groups in this realm, many of whom have called on government to take a larger role in regulating Facebook. What do they say government's role in overseeing Facebook, given its power and given how many users it has and its um, its ability to, to influence and to shape elections? Um, and is Facebook truly doing all it can to both combat the fake news problem and then uh, kind of clog these leaks, uh, these data leaks that provide user data to third party apps like Sheryl Sandberg will tell you they're they're doing everything they can. Is that really the case? I mean, there are there are two kind of general streams uh, <clears throat> of, of things that advocates are pushing for privacy advocates are pushing for. And um, one is on the privacy side. Hey, do we know what information Facebook has on us? And once we if we do know, uh, can we get Facebook to delete it if we so choose? This is the standard of uh, privacy that's been set in the EU. Oh. Um, and so there are a lot of privacy advocates in the United States saying this is a similar kind of direction that we want the United States to move in. So in the EU, you're able to know what kind of information Facebook has. There's there's some way to know it. This and is the standard. This is the law in the EU. Yeah. They are required, the social media networks are required and, and online companies are required to compile the basic private information mm -hmm. that they have on you and display it to you so that you know what it is that they have. And if the, you also have the right to request that it be deleted permanently uh, from their servers, from their from what, what they have access to, uh, if you so choose. And do we see as a result of those laws kind of tangible outcomes in terms of maybe there's fewer leaks of private data or or outside of like this just still feeling still, oh, this is all still here because I'm asking this, for results. EU, I mean, You're yeah. saying too the, soon. The EU <laughs> is just now implementing this in the next month or so, maybe two months. Um, so we haven't seen the results of what this is. And this is one of those things that are hard to measure. Um, but so there's the privacy stream. Yeah. There's also the accountability stream, right, which is, um, you know, during the 2016 presidential election, the Internet Research Agency, this troll farm in, These in Russians, Russia, oh, yeah. uh, they, uh, they spent six figures on Facebook ads. And we never knew it. No one watching those ads were ever aware of what it was that paid for those ads or what was behind them. They just knew the grammar wasn't so good. <laughs> you know, I mean, the thing is, like, when you watch television and you see a political ad, you see that it's brought to you by a certain campaign yeah. or a pack or you know some sort of organization uh, that's not required on Facebook. So there are some folks uh, on Capitol Hill who are interested in mandating that that be the case. That if there is a political ad, uh, that there be some transparency about who it's from. Is that a bipartisan effort? I believe so. Oh, good. Look at this. We can. This we is can it's get this not. Done no, it's not a. It's not an. Ex, you know. It's not a particularly stringent piece of legislation, right? Yeah. It's like uh, it's something. It would be to. It would be to standardize across various platforms of you know a basic standard of accountability. And are the social networks, digital companies, in favor of of such a bill? I mean, are they playing nice? I guess with legislation they may be coming down the pike. So Mark Zuckerberg is going to the Hill next Tuesday and next Wednesday he's going to talk to the Senate and he's going to talk to the House. Um, I'm <laughs> sure he will be asked that exact question. He has said that he's been he's open to having Facebook be a, be more regulated than it is today. Now what does that mean in particular? Well we'll see. Um, but he, he they have not been pushing back strenuously against the idea of some more regulation for Facebook. 
how does this hit up against the way Facebook makes money? And also recent revelations about growth at any cost. And I think there was some quote recently about somebody might have to die, but we will grow as a, as a company. There seems to be, I imagine, a real tension um, between being very permissive with advertising and making more money in advertising revenue and also playing this role of ensuring that you're not, you know, undermining democracies with your business model. You know, I've been probably a member of Facebook. I've been a user of Facebook since 2005. Yeah, I you think know? I've been, I've been a, a user since 2004. Like 13, 14. Yeah. How much time have you spent and how much time have I spent thinking about how how Facebook makes money? Almost zero, zero. as compared to yeah. the amount of hours that I spent on the social network, right? Are we even friends on Facebook? We should change that. Okay. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> change that. Um, but, you know, the, uh, you, you give some thought to it and you think, well, well what, does, what is the business model for Facebook? How do yeah. they make money? Right. And it turns out they make money off of you. Right. And they off make of money off of what you do. And yeah. they make money off of your, you know, your, your, your life, the particulars of your life. What specifically you like, who you know, um, and they're packaging that and selling that to advertisers to better market whatever marketers want to get you to buy, and uh, that's the ultimate business model right. of Facebook. And if we hadn't thought about it previously, now we're thinking about it a little bit more, right? Because um, they had th this entire time they did have to make money in order to exist, and uh, this is how they did it. And now we're sort of, you know, we're, kind of, we're all sort of shocked. But the entire time, this has been, it's been no secret, really, if, if we cared to think about cared. it or the look. Tim Mack, he's a reporter covering national security and politics for NPR. NPR.com uh, is where you can read uh, his work and also hear it at national public radio stations all across the country. I'm Igor Volsky. It's been great being with you here uh, for this April 6th, 2018. Hope you have a great weekend. Bye-bye. This is The Bill Press Show.